Support for Refined by Fire comes from the fine folks at Elkhart Brass. So I just spent last week hanging out at the Boise Fire Symposium. Of course, uh, teaching some forcible entry with Brothers in Battle. And uh, we had had a lot of engine work going on around us. Uh, Gary Lane and his guys from Mission First were abusing the Elkhart Chief XDs in their class, the DIY engine. I got a chance to jump in a little bit as a student with the nozzle forward and those guys were abusing the chief XDs and man, you know, I just love that tool. I love that nozzle so much. I've said it before, but like as a tradesman, I just feel like the XD was made for me as a person on the end of a line. It reminds me of a great knife or like a great barbell. It's just a tool perfectly suited to its job and its job is to deliver fire, or excuse me, to deliver water to fire. And it does that extremely well. It holds up under the most difficult conditions that firemen can put it in. Um, and and it just, uh, it does what it's supposed to do. There's no gimmicks. Um, all of the, the very small details make it what it is. Um, you know, Elkhart is supporting conferences all over the country, which is great in a couple ways. First, it allows you the opportunity to see what I'm talking about, uh, to get your hands on the Elkhart products. So get to one of these great regional or national conferences or classes and check them out and and learn something in the process, right? Go take a class, but get the tertiary benefit of like getting to check out the XDs. Um, But secondly, you know, it's a demonstration of Elkhart's commitment to the end user, which is us. Um, Elkhart's supporting us and our efforts to be the best so consider supporting them. Go to ElkhartBrass.com, find your local dealer, and check out what they've got for nozzles, monitors, and appliances. Here we are at episode 10 of Refined by Fire podcast. Uh, Refined by Fire, as always, is a Brothers in Battle media production. My name is Steven Tyler. I am the so-called host of this show. My guest for episode 10 is my friend, Brian Olson. Brian is a fireman on the same job as I am uh, in Eagle, Idaho. Uh, I've known Brian for a long time, and he's one of the most passionate and motivated people that I've ever known. And so it was... It was always going to happen. We were always going to do this show and I'm glad we finally uh, had a chance to sit down and do it. We recorded this in my backyard on a chilly morning. And so there's a lot of kind of weird background noise from, uh, I think woodpeckers and various, uh, birds and traffic. And, uh, I don't know. It, it was just fun to share a cup of coffee, talk about Brian's thoughts on search, talk about how he became uh, such an obsessive, internally motivated person, um, how he ended up teaching on a regional or national scale, uh, how he ended up like doing strongman things, throwing around like 200-pound concrete stones and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of fun to talk with Brian and uh, a lot of fun to be able to put it on the recorder and uh, send it out for everyone to listen to. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Here is my conversation with my friend, Brian Olson. Okay, 
I'm here with Brian Olson. Sup, Brian? How's it going? We are sitting in my backyard. I don't know if this is a good idea or not. <laughs> <laughs> it's spring in Idaho, and like things are blossoming, and the lawn's green for the first time in six months. And uh, I thought it would be cool to hang out back here. So hopefully we don't get like a bunch of planes overhead. But I figured if I could record in a bar with Stretch Martin, that we could we could record in the backyard. Yeah, it's a great idea. Okay. It's very picturesque. It's the only good idea I'll have all day. I'm going <laughs> to rely on you for the other ones. Uh, Brian, we're also wearing the same pants. <laughs> I did notice that. I didn't say anything about this it. This is awkward. Uh, do I need to change? Or is this going to be a problem? I don't think it's going to be a problem. Okay. All right, You're good. actually the one that recommended me buying these pants. So uh, you have no one to blame but yourself. I'm not going to get paid for this. I'm not sponsored by Carhartt. Uh, but these Carhartt full swing pants are legit. If you do squats and you have thighs that are that are not like going to fit skinny into skinny jeans. jeans or even normal jeans, if you are constantly blowing out the crotch of your pants like I am, uh, Carhartt Full Swing, uh, that tip's free. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, cool, Brian. Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. It's weird to talk to your friend in front of a microphone. Uh, but uh, we've had so many good talks over the years that hopefully we don't fail here with it recorded to send out to the interwebs. That's a lot of pressure I'm putting on you. It's a lot of pressure, but we'll figure it out. All right. Okay, okay, so I posted a picture this morning on the social media. Um, It was a meme that you've sent me many times over the years. Uh, uh, That's one flew over the cuckoo's nest, I think. Jack Nicholson's sticking his head out, says... No, it's the shining. The shining. the shining. See, I don't see. Oh, dang it. I'm going to have to <laughs> edit that out. Okay, it was uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining sticking his face through the crack in the door and uh, says, I'm not obsessive. I'm internally motivated. This is fun because you and I are, it's weird. I feel like we're really different people who had really different backgrounds who ended up with extremely similar interests and passions. So uh, we've had this talk a lot about how people motivate and I've, continuously uh ragged you about being obsessive that you you bite into something and like like a wolverine man like like lock jaw down onto that uh i think you're you're maybe the most obsessive person (laughs) i've ever known and you take a little bit of issue with that so i guess let's talk about that a little bit and then then i want to get into like how firefighting became one of your obsessions well uh it's probably true. I mean, I like to I like to joke about the fact that I'm not obsessive, but I think anybody who knows me uh, would say that I am completely obsessive. So, internally motivated is just a kind way of <laughs> admitting that you know I'm an obsessive person. But um, yeah, so I guess we can talk about where where that started. Yeah. So why? Why am you, I that way? <laughs> you played baseball growing up. It was your focus. Um, you've talked a lot about that on Fit to Fight Fire podcast. You guys should go listen to that after you listen to this. Um, how did firefighting happen? And um, yeah, like, like how, how did you get into that? And why was it something that for someone who's so passionate, like why did that pique your interest? Well, I think... Uh, I'll start, I'll start with the obsessive part is 
I can remember, uh, I think when I, when I really, uh, recognized it and that kind of my personality came out was when I was nine years old and, uh, all I, all I cared about, you know, from about the time I was five until I was 25, at least the thing I obsessed over the most was, was baseball. And I can remember, uh, as a nine year old, I played an entire little league season, and I think it was my first season of uh, where the kids pitch and the coaches don't pitch. And I went an entire season without putting a ball in play, hitting. So I either struck out or I walked for an entire little league season, <laughs> which is <laughs> that's not true. It is true. It is absolutely true, and I can I can remember it very well. I, I mean, we played all our games at Eagle Hills elementary school uh and i can we were the giants and i remember it very well i went an entire year uh without putting a ball in fair play i fouled a few and had a few foul tips or whatever but i never put a ball in play and i remember uh one kind of feeling the shame shame in myself uh but also i kind of recognized too the um how like uh uh, people on my team or whatever like actually felt sorry for me like I could I recognize that and that's the first time I did and I I just remember being like it's one of those things where uh, you fail at something and then you just go into it full steam ahead like I had this change of mindset where I was bound and determined to be good at baseball no matter what it took and so that's the when I started I can remember after that uh, and I didn't get much better, but, but I can remember like I would go to uh, my friends who were my neighbors, who were my best friends going up. They played baseball and they were a little bit younger than me, but I would go to their practices and my practices and I would go to their practice and shag fly balls or do whatever. And I just remember becoming completely obsessed with baseball in every way, shape and form. And that continued on for over a decade well over a decade actually uh to where you know in high school it's all i cared about and then i found weightlifting in high school because so that became part of that obsession as well where i would i would lift weights after school you know the baseball coach would have an open gym for an hour and then i would go to baseball practice and then i would go to my gym membership once i got a driver's license for another three or four hours and i would do that every single day you know without without missing it. And so I think more than anything, uh, with the obsessive part is uh, somewhere along the line, I don't even know, like into college and stuff, how much I actually enjoyed baseball. I was just unwilling to give up on this goal I had set of, of trying to be, uh, you know, a professional baseball player, which I, I just wasn't, wasn't skilled enough to make that happen. But so after, after that whole baseball career transpired and uh, I stopped playing baseball and, and through all that time I'd been I'd worked on the farm with my dad I'm sure we'll talk about that kind of stuff later that later and and work construction but the firefighting part came around when uh, I was I was really praying a lot because I didn't know what to do with my life I didn't have a direction I know I didn't want to work uh excavation which is what I was doing at the time with my family uh, I know I didn't want to do that and uh, I 
I had applied to a school of ministry, actually here in the area, the Calvary Chapel uh, Bible School or whatever it is, to be a pastor. And, and I had applied for that. And uh, right about that same time, I can remember uh, praying, and then I just kind of had this, uh, you know, uh, I remember it's written down in my journal. It just says, you know, you're going to put out fires in hearts and fires in homes. And I didn't really know what that meant. But then uh, we had an uh, excavation job we did. And uh, in all honesty, the first thing I recognized is this guy had like a Hummer and he had a nice house and he had all these things. <laughs> and I'm like, I remember asking my dad, I was like, what does this guy do for a living? And uh, he goes, well, he's a firefighter. And I go, really, a firefighter? And I remembered that thing I'd written in my journal and uh, that person turned out to be our former chief. Uh, we were actually working at his house. Uh, but that started the whole thing of I, I put in my application to be a volunteer at Eagle Fire. And, and that next fall uh, started down that path. So once I, <clears throat> once I became a volunteer, uh, that same obsessive behavior just got poured right into firefighting and I just went into it full steam ahead so so a couple of things on that did you have any choice like or is this just your DNA like yeah, I, I don't mean firefighting but but just this intrinsic motivation um I think it's kind of a little bit of both but I think it's in my DNA because I mean uh if you look at, I, I kind of come from a long line of some, some pretty tough individuals, my dad, my grandpa, my great grandpa. So, you know, when my dad was 10 years old, he knew he wanted to be a farmer. He didn't want to do anything else in his life, but be a farmer. And so he actually uh, went to the neighbor. My, my grandpa wasn't a, he had dairy cows, but he didn't, he didn't share crop. He didn't farm crops. And so my dad went to the neighbor who was a sharecropper, and he, and he, he told him, he goes, hey, if you teach me how to farm, I'll work for you for free as a 10-year-old. And so it's like, well, maybe some of this is, uh, is uh, in my DNA a little bit. And, uh, but as I'm getting older, I'm realizing I do, I, can, I do have the ability to choose how obsessive I get over things, but uh, it's not easy. So. <laughs> uh, what I think is what I think is cool about this, or it's funny, I've known you for a while now, maybe ten years. You, was that two thousand eight when you started? Yeah. Yep. yep. Okay. Ten so years. About ten years. Uh, and if a person met you last year in two thousand seventeen, they would think of, of Brian Olson, the firefighter, uh, the river rafter, <laughs> and and this strong man, you know, power lifter guy. Um, because that's been kind of your focus, your obsessions over the last 365 days. Right. Um, and, and because you're so like 100% into those things, they might just assume that like, that's, that's Brian. That's how Brian's always been. Yeah. But like, that, that's not the case. That's not the case. Um, no. Yeah. Now you have a little bit of an ability to sink your teeth into something, but not let go of what you also had like in your past right that's something that i definitely struggle with moving from thing to thing is completely dropping whatever i left i used to be obsessed with fly fishing and i haven't cast i cast a fly rod once last year so i went from 
you know, I don't know, 40 days on the water a year to one um, as my passions have, have evolved. But you have a little bit of a way of like keeping those things alive. So are, how do you do that, man? Well, uh, <clears throat> it's not easy. I mean, the, the, there's positives and negatives. The positives to, to being able to be that obsessed with something and, and to be that driven to accomplish Whatever the goal is, is that you sacrifice something else, you know, because you can't be, you know, 110% into obsessed with this one thing and not have it sacrifice something else. And that the positive is, is that I feel like whatever that next thing that I get super <laughs> obsessed with, I feel like I can, I can almost go after anything I want. Like if I decided tomorrow I want to be a, a backcountry pilot in Idaho like I feel like I could I could do that because I know through all these years of, of of chasing those things I know that I can apply myself to reach a goal the negative is again the sacrifice a lot of time comes in the way of uh, sacrificing time with your family sacrificing time with your kids or your wife so like the positive is I can I can be successful in these goals the negative is uh, like if you ask my wife, I'm not a very easy person to live with sometimes <laughs> because I get obsessed with these things. And uh, and the same, yeah, and you can see with my kids too, like uh, a perfect example is uh, teaching, like f going around and teaching fire service stuff. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in depth as well. But uh, I obviously obsessed over that for a while and still partly obsessed with it, but you know, my kids recognize like, oh, you're going to another conference. So now I've, I've, I've kind of taught myself a little bit of how to let go of these things, but I can kind of re-energize them when needed to. So like this year, I, I'm basically taking an entire year off of traveling and teaching because, uh, and we've talked about this a lot, is becoming like super well known as an instructor or a fire service leader or whatever is great unless your kids think you're an asshole at the end of it. So like we've talked about how a lot of the most successful people we know professionally have uh, personal lives that, you know, they've been divorced multiple times or their, their kids, they don't have a good relationship with their kids. And so I think it'd be very easy for me to head down that path because again, I've uh, work ethic wise. Yeah. Like that, I think that's built into my DNA. Like my, all the men in my family and the women, my mom as well, like could be our workaholics. And so it'd, it'd be easy for me to go that way. And there are positives to that, but I'm trying to learn to balance them. And so I think with, when I have these ob obsessions, whether it be rafting or, or strongman stuff or whatever, I try to set goals uh, not long-term goals, short-term goals, and I try to meet them. And then if I have to let go of it for a little while, hopefully I've built up enough skill and knowledge that I can come back to it. And so I can kind of keep, if you, it's, it's kind of funny. I recognize if you uh, follow me on Facebook or social media or whatever, you can almost track the seasons through my <laughs> social media because, like, you'll see... Like right now, you'll see a bunch of rafting stuff because it's rafting season. And then you'll see a bunch of hunting stuff when the fall comes around. And so you can almost see like these obsessive 
things that I've been chasing uh, are revolving all the time now. And I'm just trying to temper uh, the amount of energy I put into them all the time. So. Yeah, cool. So you talked a little, you touched on the, the talks we've had about uh, being so interested in teaching, trying to become a better teacher, trying to become a better student, spending time learning from other great firefighters, other great instructors. Um, when these opportunities fall into your lap, like, like they have been, I think for you for the last several years, um, it's very difficult to say no to those because you see the benefit of, of those right. types of opportunities. Um, and we, we've talked about how we kind of wrestle uh, the balance in our families and, and then also how we wrestle. Um, we we're from a small department in Nowhereville, Idaho. <laughs> <clears throat> and how you've had to reconcile, you know, teaching and speaking mm -hmm. on a regional or national level with also being a firefighter with less than 10 years on the job from a small department. Um, so, you know, what's that journey been like for you? Uh, how have you, and, and have you landed on something or are you still kind of trying to manage that tension? Uh, the, the journey part's been fairly difficult um, because, you know, uh, one, one, so we probably wouldn't be having this conversation if, if we had not joined up with brothers in battle, you know, maybe, maybe in some weird realm we would, but, uh, it was difficult starting out because again, like you said, we come from a, a small department in Idaho, uh, and really, uh, there wouldn't be any of this struggle if social media didn't exist because that was the outreach, you know, because anyone can put anything on social media. So, uh, for me, it's been a, I've had to wrestle with it because initially, again, there, you know, sometimes people who have, you know, if you have, a, if you're attached to a certain department, you get a certain amount of street credibility right off the bat, regardless of whether it's uh, deserved or not. You know, most of the time it is. Sometimes, you know, you don't know. Uh, when you come from a small department, you, you don't get that initially because, uh, if you work at a department that's not recognized by the average firefighter looking at something, uh, the question always is, well, you know, uh, how many fires do they go to, or, or where is this place even, or who does this guy think he is, or on any of these questions. So there's always going to be that tension of, uh, should I be talking? Should I be saying anything? Should I be sharing anything? And if you have a desire to just pass information on, uh, that can be a weird realm to play in. And so that's my desire is always to one challenge myself. Uh, I don't, I have the highest standard for myself. And so by putting yourself out there, anyone who's ever put anything out on social media, whether it be an article, a video, anything knows that when you put yourself out there, there's a certain amount of, uh, recourse that, that happens. And so that's a challenge in and of itself. But I want to share this information and I want to pass on things that have been passed on to me. I mean, the, the recognition really goes to my mentors, guys like Cody Trustrail and Jesse Avery, who, you know, are with us and brothers in battle. And then there's, I mean, there's so many guys from around the country that I've talked to and tried to pair my own 
experience with the things that they were telling me and, and the things that I was thinking. And when those things all started to line up, I go, well, maybe I should start sharing some of this stuff. And I was never a social media guy before that. I mean, I didn't want anything to do with Facebook or anything, but but I saw the value in being able to provide uh, some information and just put it out there and, again, challenge myself to be better and challenge my own perspective on things and then maybe help some people along the way. But, but it is difficult when you get... Uh, when you get pushback because of where you work, not because of your skill level or your passion or your knowledge. So that, that part can be difficult, but through time, you know, I've kind of uh, remembered and latched on to another mentor's quote, Billy Milligan works for Riverside City Fire, and he always says it's not time on the job, it's skills on the job, you know, and he's got both time <laughs> And he's one of the most skilled firefighters I've been around. And so uh, when I hear somebody like Billy, uh, who I have the utmost respect for, say something like that, it makes me think, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I can add a little bit of benefit and uh, hopefully give credit to, you know, all of those mentors that I've had throughout the years and be able to pass something on. Because the reality is, it's, is I'm not concerned with, you know, my name being remembered or recognized or anything like that. It's just all about trying to make myself and other people better and provide that information. And if I can do that, I want to, uh, regardless of, you know, if people go, well, where in the hell is Eagle Idaho? Well, it's in Idaho and, you know, it's not that different from a lot of other, you know, smaller departments or mid-sized departments around the country. So, um, uh, you touched on like five things I want to talk about. Um, let's get forward. I, I generally ask uh, a lot of folks like if they see a value in social media uh, for the fire service, and, and you kind of you kind of touched on that a little bit. So, what are some of the pitfalls that you've encountered? Uh, maybe some of the failures that you've had, uh, or lessons that you've learned, and then and then you know how do you feel about it now? Like, what's your overarching philosophy on it? Because knowing you. You, you got you don't do things thoughtlessly like there's a reason why you're spending time right. uh, posting things on the internet and, and and I know from conversations with people that it can be seen as hubristic or narcissistic and because I know you I know that's not the case so let's talk a little bit about maybe you know the lessons you've learned and and why you continue to be active on social media yeah <laughs> so I do think there's a value to it um, because again, it, the the age that we live in now, information is so widely available. And if you're someone like me who like, likes to obsess over things, uh, I can I can dig into that as far as I want with essentially endless information. The pitfalls that I have is that, you know, again, this goes all the way back to me being a nine year old. Is as I put these videos out and I practice these skills and what people don't see is for me to put like a 90 second video out, like I'll do that skill and record it like 30 times. And there's some, there's some guys that are going to listen to this podcast that are part of the, the poor bastards that have had to sit there and video me 30 times because <laughs> I demanded that I did it the best that I could before I put it out there. Um, but 
what that makes me seem like is a narcissistic asshole because I'm, I, and, and this is one of my failures is, is early on, I would, I would put videos out and videos and videos and videos and videos. And I think it can easily be uh, seen as I'm trying to show people how good I am or I'm trying to make them feel bad about themselves because I'm like, oh, I'm doing all this training. Look at me. When in reality, you know, I treat social media, especially like my Facebook page or whatever, a lot like my journal because I'm, I'm terrible at journaling regularly. But I'll put this stuff out and I like to use it to check myself to be like, look at my own performance or like now that the Facebook memories things come up and I'll see, oh, this time last year. I was training and I haven't done anything today. So it's like this personal accountability. Um, but from the outside looking in, uh, when you see someone doing that, it's, it's more of a narcissistic type of thing. So, and I recognize that and it's, and it's, I, I feel it's totally valid. So I've tried to be better about that. And now if you look, I, I, I kind of rarely put uh, fire service things up on social media, whether that's, uh, you know, with our brothers in battle page or, uh, with search culture, which I do with Justin McWilliams is I kind of decided to take a step back and kind of reevaluate what I was putting out there and, uh, how often I was doing it and just try to watch it from afar for a little, for a little bit. I still put stuff on social media, of course, but um, I've tried to temper the amount of fire service stuff that I put out there. And uh, I still think it's a good thing. It's just I have to figure out my approach to doing it, to doing it that's the most effective because uh, it can turn people off uh, pretty easily. You know, unless you're like me, I see those videos that people put out all the time and it motivates me and it's like, oh man, that guy's kicking ass I want to do that and and that's kind of what I thought was happening when I was doing it but it's actually probably the exact opposite for a lot of people uh when when guys are saying hey you know stop yelling at us you know or whatever you know which is kind of in jest but uh it could easily and it obviously was getting construed that way that I was like telling people they need to be doing these things and and, and instead I was hoping for you know that that reciprocating, like now they put something out I and mean, it's like this back and forth. Cause I love these like little back and forth, like trying to one up each other things because I think they make, uh, they make people better when, when you find someone that's in stride with that. But yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point and a fair point. And I think going back to our, the, the origin of the conversation, talking about you being an intrinsic, intrinsically motivated and obsessive person, I'm not intrinsically motivated. I am an, an extrinsically motivated person, unfortunately, as much as I wish I were not. That's, that's my DNA. And so for me to see people putting that stuff out there, uh, in fact, so I saw something on social media this morning that a friend posted that said, the benefits of comparing yourself to others, and it was a, an empty list of one to 10, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing written on there. And I just couldn't disagree more. And I know that may be true for some people. I'm not trying to say that's universally untrue, but it's absolutely not true for me. Comparison is very positive for me because if I see Olsen crushing it with whatever it is, you know, 
Olsen's throwing the 35-foot ladder by himself. Well, Brian and I are built the same, and we're the same age. There's no reason I can't do it. I see Adam Mayer's like flowing water all the time, just practicing, practicing, practicing ad nauseum. Now he gets blowback for that. If you have time to set up the camera, you have time for another rep. This is not a binary decision. You can throw a ladder and record it. Like those are not actually mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. So for, for a person like me, it's incredibly beneficial. Like starting out at the very beginning, seeing what, Brian and Chris and Gary with Fire Service Warrior were doing like, um, but now having a few years on and and we've gone through this social media evolution, it's interesting how our perspectives have matured and I'm sure they will continue to mature. But um, yeah, just just generally speaking, you know, I guess we all come from a different place and and I love seeing that stuff because it, it makes me like you said it makes me want to to go do it as well. Yeah, and. And it's not like I've I've necessarily stopped. I've only stopped with the fire side because now you know I'm putting videos up all the time of working out. Um, the difference being, uh, I'm I'm not going to get as much pushback when I put up a video of me lifting because uh, you can either lift the weight or you can't. It's not about your department. It's not about my department. It's not about anything. It's just about uh, you know, the person moving the weight. So, uh, you know, I still have that desire to push myself and, you know, I was, I, and I've gotten better at this, but I was terribly introverted for a, the majority of my life. And so we didn't have a conversation for your like first three and a half years. Yeah. Fire yeah. I didn't really want to talk to anybody for my first few years of being a firefighter or hang out with anyone because I wanted I wanted people to respect me for my skill level, not the fact that we go hang out and have beers. So, like, I didn't, you know, I had friends that I saw when we were at the fire station, but I didn't hang out with anyone uh, outside of that. So, you know, this is, it's part of that, too, is me overcoming that introverted side of myself and putting myself out there, which is something that I never in a million years would have thought I'd be doing because... I wasn't like that. I always just, through baseball and everything, I would go and do my work, and that would be the end of it. And it was, and again, because uh, I'm fairly <laughs> internally motivated, uh, I didn't need anyone else there. And and a lot of times I still don't. I can just go and do my thing, but now I have an outlet to kind of capture that a little bit. And, uh, and maybe there's some people uh, that see that as motivation and if i have to take a little bit of blowback uh for being a narcissist or whatever because of that then so be it you know I'm, i've kind of i'm kind of uh accepted that a little bit so so we've both uh talked around the fact that we're from a small department we don't go to 50 jobs a year um but you've made the statement i don't go to a lot of fires but i've never wasted one which I think is uh, absolutely the way to, to approach this job, regardless of how many you go to. Um, so talk about what that means and looks like in practice. Uh, it means I obsess over every fire that we go to, whether it's big or small. So, uh, yeah, we don't go to a lot of fires, but I've never wasted one. And what that really means to me is uh, when we have 
fires that, you know, are single alarm room and contents or, you know, small fires, uh, I tend to pick them apart uh, endlessly almost, especially my own performances. Because we don't go to a lot of them, I can't just go to a fire and be like, oh, yeah, went out just like the last one. Like I can't afford uh, for my own growth to look at it that way because I don't know when the next one is coming. So I tend to look at those. I dissect my own performance. I try to dissect dissect the performance of, of you know all our companies and try to look out how we can get better. And I, I never just brush them off uh, as small fires or as just another routine fire because, again, I, I just feel like we don't, we don't have the ability to produce fires. And so if we start having a complacent attitude towards them as just the fire went out again, just like it did the last time we had it, um, we're, we're never going to grow beyond where we're at right now. And so we, you know, have the opportunity then to end up with 30 years of experience and the same year repeated over and over. And that's not how I want to end my career. Any examples of like, like you said, that small fire, that trash can fire that ran up into the soffit, you know, whatever it is, a little BS fire where you've, where you pick something up that's, that's you carried forward that's maybe still just a slide in the back of your head or it actually had useful consequences on a more meaningful call later down the road uh i have a lot of mistakes i've made at a lot at a lot of fires and so um you know i can remember a small and i don't even know if there was even one lick of active flame at this thing but it was a at a dryer fire where we showed up and uh and the mom and the daughter were in the front yard and, and I was stretching the line and it was just a, a straight pull pre-connect, you know, and I, uh, I made the, I made an angle away from the engine a little bit too fast and a coupling got stuck and it hung me up, you know, as you're trying to be fast and you're trying to kind of jog and pull this line that got caught. And I turned around and I just started yanking on it, yanking on it, and uh, the coupling finally came loose and I fell right on my back in the middle of the driveway right in front of this woman and her kid as, uh, you know, there was a, some whiffs of smoke coming out of their house. And so I learned after that in very embarrassing uh, moment to, you know, uh, pull straight out from the engine a little bit, you know, the next time. And so... That's a little one that I always laugh about because I go, that's about as, you know, and if that would have been caught on YouTube or a video or whatever, like that's the quickest way for someone to destroy their credibility a lot of times is we're all just one video away from people thinking we're a piece of shit fireman because of one mistake. But um, there have been a lot very early on. Uh, there were a lot of, of fires that we went to, I say a lot, but there were fires that we went to where I recognized I had very, very poor skills masking up. Uh, and that's something that it took a while for me to really recognize because the general attitude around me was that's acceptable. And so I would, you know, I can remember going to a fire and I don't even want to know how long it took me to mask up. I did not, I was not taught to mask up with my gloves on when I started, so I didn't have my gloves on. And I'm just going through the process and even checking the, 
valve and all, doing all these things. And I can remember these fires and there's multiple fires like this in my head where just an unbelievable amount of time was wasted. And uh, it wasn't until I started seeing some other people go to academies, uh, you know, where they were forced to mask up with their gloves on. And I would see like the academy <laughs> that you went to, Stephen and Boise's Academy. And, you know, you, you got to mask up with your gloves on a lot of times. And, and I didn't have that skill. And at first I was, I was kind of resistive to it because uh, I go, well, everyone does it this way. It's, it should be fine. And then I would try it and I was like, I don't think I can do this, you know, because the first time you try it and it's a complete shit show, you're like, well, yeah, this is dumb. I don't, I don't know why they do that. But again, I became those failure points. I became obsessed over them. And I go, this is uh, like Tim Kennedy says, you know, like hurry up and fail, you know, so you can learn. And, and I think I have a little bit of that uh, drive in me and that initial failures and looking ridiculous trying to put my mask on with with gloves on i recognize that as a weakness and i just want to attack it to where now you know i feel fairly proficient masking up and that has benefited me on fires for you know the last five or six years because i made that change uh, after seeing somebody else do it better and and recognizing i was failing at that on incidents a lot and uh, yeah we could go on and <laughs> on and on about the number of failures but uh, yeah I just look at every fire that that I'm privileged enough to go to and uh, try to find first uh, little things that I could improve and then also try to recognize the things that I, I felt like I did good at because Part of my personality for a long time was I didn't I never recognized the things that I did good. Uh, I can remember, you know, I was I was laughing about this with my dad yesterday actually. Uh, I would come home from baseball games in high school where I went two for four and hit two doubles, and I refused to talk to my parents, and I refused to eat dinner because I felt like I should have went four for four, and I went two for four, <laughs> you know, and so like I. I only focused on uh, my failures and my weaknesses uh, because I think maybe that goes back to when I was a kid and I recognized how bad I was at this. Uh, now I've kind of tried to change that and also recognize, oh, okay, I, I did that good. I want to continue to do that rather than just simply focus on all the failures because I think that's a that can also, you know, play games with your head as well. And you start to think you're not good at anything because all you're ever doing is telling yourself how shitty you are at everything. So I think it's a balance there. Sounds good. Uh, when you were talking about mentors a little bit ago, you talked about Cody and Jesse, Cody Trestrail, Jesse Avery, the founders of Brothers in Battle, and um, the senior men that they've been to you. How in the world did a bunch of dorks like us in Idaho, Meridian and Eagle, Idaho, get hooked up with these guys um, from from Portland, Vancouver, guys with backgrounds in the FDNY. Um, how, how did that happen? R run us through that a little bit. I blame Facebook specifically, <laughs> but uh, to kind of start it at the beginning as, as a firefighter, 
that we work with, or he's an engineer. He wishes he was a firefighter, but uh, <laughs> he's an engineer, uh, Ben Moores. Him and I went to a Fool's Force of Entry class in Seattle, Washington, and so it was a smash and grab job. You know, we drove all night uh, to get to Seattle, slept in Ben's car for a couple hours in front of Seattle's training center, and then took this 10-hour Force of Entry class and then drove all the way home that night because I had to work a shift the next day and at that class was Cody Trestrail was teaching Jesse Avery uh, Josh Materi Tommy Hofflin Coy Wilson uh, oh there's another guy I think it's Joshua Peoples I believe sorry Josh if that's wrong but uh, all these guys were teaching at that class and then there were guys in that class uh, Matt Fullerton is with Brothers in Battle Chris Fukai um, who else? I think Ryan Cox might have been at that class. Rob Fisher, Chad Berg. There's a bunch of a bunch of these guys that we are now connected with. We're all, for whatever reason, at this class together. Ryan Mills was at that class. Another Brothers in Battle instructor. So, what? And it was a great forceful entry class. And at the time, our department had no forceful entry doors, and all we'd be, had was IFSTA forceful entry training and no real hands-on training whatsoever. And so, on the way back from that class, I can remember Ben and I talking like, uh, "We can build one of those door props. Like, I can build one of those doors." And so, we came back, and I reached out to another guy who's been a you know, a great mentor, Andrew Brassard, you know, from Milton, Ontario. And he basically told me, sent me a bunch of pictures of force entry doors and said, just go for it, man. Just build a door no matter what it's like. And so I proceeded to build the shittiest door prop in the history of the universe. And I will argue that to my death. It was a terrible, <laughs> terrible door, Skeletor door. It was horrible, but, uh, we started to use it. And so it kind of ran its, you know, very short life. And we built a little bit better one. Then we started building another one. And we started messing around with these designs. And, and through the process of doing this, uh, we recognized the lack of forceful entry training in our area. There wasn't a bunch of door props. There were, there's a bunch of, you know, smaller departments around here. And we thought, well, what if we start taking these door props to these places and giving guys just like we had zero force of entry training an opportunity to work through this and so we started a group called refined by fire training which is now deceased but i'm glad to see the name <laughs> picked back up by this awesome podcast uh and so we we were we were going around and we were quote unquote teaching really we were sharing our door props uh for hamburgers and beer and I was literally calling departments, calling training guys and being like, hey, do you guys are doing your this whatever conference? Do you want some forcible entry doors? And we'd haul them over there and and do our thing. And about that time, we had the Refined by Fire Facebook page and there was a Facebook page and a group called Brothers in Battle, which happened to be made up of a lot of those guys who were at that initial class that we took. And. And what happened was Brother in Battle was coming to Idaho, refined by fire. We were going, we went to Hermiston, Oregon, and we were basically passing each other on the freeway. And so I got a hold of Cody. You know, I, I didn't know him at all at the time uh, through Facebook and was like, hey, you know, we're kind of doing the same thing. Have you guys ever thought about 
expanding or whatever. And it just turned out uh, that him and Jesse had been talking and, and yeah, they wanted to expand. And so they flew over and met with myself and Ben Rosenbaum and some of the other guys who had, who had been teaching with this group. And, uh, you know, we just hit it off and uh, decided that, you know, refined by fire would go away and we would just basically become brothers in battle instructors, which is awesome because they were getting paid for classes and they had insurance and all these things that we didn't have and wasn't happening for us with uh, refined by fire. And so that was great. But in reality, the, the recognition really goes to Cody and Jesse and a lot of those other guys at brothers in battle, because again, those guys are from bigger urban departments, uh, with a lot of experience and they could have easily said, you know, we don't want to hook up with a bunch of guys from Nowheresville, Idaho, but they didn't, they looked at the, the mindset and how we meshed together and, you know, the things we were teaching and the skill level and those things. And because they had come from smaller departments before, I think they were more open to that idea. Um, but again, they, they brought us in and treated us just like anybody else because, uh, yeah, they're just great guys and they've become, uh, you know, some of our best friends and mentors, you know, that I couldn't imagine now, uh, not having in my life. So. It's really unbelievable. I, I don't know about you, Brian. I feel like I've lived a charmed fire service life. Uh, I was talking with Chief Rayner from Valdez, Alaska, the former training chief of, of Boise, Idaho, at the um, firemanship conference a couple months ago. And he was just asking how things was, were going. And I was just in this moment of just being in awe of the opportunities that I've had. And uh, it, it really started, well, started just a little before that with, with guys um, like, like Ben Rosenbaum kind of just speaking into my career and just saying, you can, you can be one of three kinds of firefighters. Who are you going to be? Um, but really Cody and Jesse believing in us as people and rather than looking at the patch on our shoulder uh, has really been like what's accelerated those types of opportunities. And yeah, I guess it's cool to be able to take a moment and just like recognize those guys for, um, for that lack of ego and just really um, being like a people centered organization that brothers yeah. and model is like, they're just all about people, man. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, and it is just a complete lack of, of ego and, and caring more about, you know, the training that we put out um, the charities that can get benefited than, than about where we come from or, or how many fires we go to. It's not about that at all. It's all about, you know, what we're able to provide for other people. So yeah, none of it would be possible without, without them, without brothers in battle. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, one of the classes that has been, it's, it's been more recent. I think we launched it a couple years ago now is the, uh, VES beyond the door. And you've been instrumental in uh, developing and delivering that. Uh, one of the one of the fires you have been on, I guess that. Well, let me back up. Cut that crap out. Um, 
I like that it's called Beyond the Door. I, I was taught to VES in a very specific way, and, and we talk a lot about VEIS and, and whether or not the I should be in there, and, and I am not going to get into that whatsoever. Uh, but with Beyond the Door, uh, one of the things we touch on is, is you know, what's your plan if there isn't a door? If, if it's not a compartmented room or, or if the door is burned away? And um, I, I think it's a great class, and, and that's a great skill to be working on. Now, you had that call a few years back. Um, so can you run us through what that fire was, you know, the situation with uh, Beyond the Door, and um, whether or not that kind of informed this, how this class was formed? Yeah, so uh, the fire that Stephen's talking about is a fire that we had I want to say it was uh, October 21st, 2015, and uh, it was 3 a.m. We get called out to a to a fire, and and knowing the address, and it was in, in one of our engine company's first due, and uh, as we were going up in the truck, we could see the column and the glow um, from probably about a mile out, and we we ended up being second doing the truck but the comment was made in the cab on the way there because we knew this was a trailer park that oh this is going to be a defensive fire because you see a big glow in the middle of the night and uh and you think single wide trailers and you go well there's going to be nothing left so uh fast forward a couple minutes we show up on scene and the battalion chief assigns us to VES, the Bravo side. And it was just like, you know, we, we fight complacency all the time, uh, you know, in the fire service. And, and this is one of those moments I always remember of keeping that mindset in check that we were going to go in, you know, until we are told not to go in. And so we get assigned VES, and uh, myself and Tavis are the firefighters in the back. And before the air brake even hits, we're out the door and, and running down the street. So we go running up, or uh, I go running up, and uh, the captain from the first two engine was there. And I, go, I yelled at him, uh, you know, what side, what side? And he pointed uh, to what would be, you know, a lot of times we say the alpha side of a trailer is the the hitch side so it would have been you know the bravo charlie corner so i go running up and the house has got some you know some you know we call them built more they needed more so they built more it's got some built more spaces on it and i kind of weave through the lawn mowers and and broke down motorcycles and all these things and get to the backyard and the windows right there so I start masking up and, uh, you know, trailers have elevated windows because they're on a trailer. And so luckily enough, there was actually an air conditioning unit on the ground below this window. So I stood on top of that air conditioning unit, took the glass, read the smoke, took the sash out and then went in. And so what had happened was there was a grandson who escaped the fire and he had told that first two engine captain and, and he had taken him to that window and pointed at it and said you know my grandpa's in here and so we had known that information and i'm expecting to go right in this window and i'm going to find this individual right there and uh 
I went in, got, was on top of a bed, dropped off the bed, went over to the door. You know, you predict layouts in a single wide trailer. It's pretty easy to know where that door is going to be. Uh, so go over to the door, sweep the hallway, and the door is is next to me. And I remember putting my hand on the, on the edge of the door, and I sweep out into the hallway with my arm. And then I go to slam the door shut, and it falls on top of me. So the door was either not connected you know before the fire or the heat from the fire you know the the hinges popped off or whatever but the door was not connected to the door frame so the door's kind of on top of me and i kind of wrestle it off of me and just put it up against the the frame of the door into the room and meanwhile while this is happening that first two engine is is knocking down the fire so a lot of the fire had been knocked down but there was still you know zero visibility as far as as the smoke goes and so now I start focusing my search on the bed. He's not on the bed. Look in the closet. He's not in the closet. And, you know, a single wide room, they aren't very big, you know, 10 by 10 at most. So, and I, I talk about this in classes a lot of times is I had this moment in my head and why it's so important to think about time during your search and the size of the room that you're searching where it was just like, you're done. He's not here. You know, and that was something that I had never been trained. I, I, I'm not even sure where that came from, but uh, in my head. But I had this moment, and it was like an audible voice in my head that said, your search is done. He's not here. And that was really hard in the moment because he's supposed to be here. The kid said he was here. Where is he? You know, and uh, went back to the window, and my captain was at the window and said, the search is negative. I'm going to keep searching through the hallway, which again was something that we hadn't trained on specifically in our department is searching beyond that initial room. And I could see, you know, he had a little bit of hesitation there, but then he trusted me to do that. So I went back to the door, moved the door out of the way, immediately went into a bathroom, searched the bathroom. He wasn't there and then got to, the kitchen and what I'd found was the door that was going out the Delta side of the trailer and I had opened that door and there was fire behind the door because again of this built more structure there was fire in a lot of a lot of places that were not directly in the residence so there was kind of a funny moment actually I uh you know I'm searching I got my halligan I get to this door and I can see the slide bolt is locked and I'm like, oh, shit, yeah, I'm going to force this door, not realizing that I'm on the interior and all I have to do is unlock it. <laughs> you know, I almost forced my way out of the structure. But, uh, yeah, I just, I'll never forget that moment of, like, going, man, you are an idiot, and then just sliding the slide bolt out of the way. But, uh, but there's fire on the other side, and so I called, I was calling for a hose line. And meanwhile, uh, all this is going on, the other half of our four-person truck had VESed, the kitchen window and they knew it was the kitchen window but we had four to five engine company guys trying to go through the alpha side door attacking this fire and they weren't going to get clogged behind them so they decided to go through the kitchen window and it was actually one of them uh firefighter tavis who uh found the victim in the kitchen right about the same time that i was getting to that spot so 
Tavis, I didn't believe had seen his hand with a with the flashlight. And so right about the time Tavis had grabbed him by the hands and started dragging him, I was at the feet and got him to that kitchen window and another firefighter uh, who was a volunteer with us at the time, who now works uh, for a local department in Nampa, Aaron, uh, the three of us lifted the victim out of the window and to the captain who was waiting on the outside. So um, we'd basically, you know, entered multiple windows, entered the outside door of the hand line and had coincidentally searched the entirety of this structure with those crews because we went beyond the door and continued on our search because conditions allowed. If there had been fire in the kitchen or the hallway, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So again, that that fire for that reason really cemented into me training and mental repetitions because I had thought about that type of fire and a VES over and over and over. I mean, I'm obsessed with search. So I had role played that through my head thousands of times. And I, I was convinced that I was going to go my entire career without doing a VES. Like I was just like, it's never going to happen. And that was true until <laughs> the night that it happened. So I really think those mental repetitions helped me a lot because in the moment decisions were made that I didn't have to think a whole lot about. Obviously I had little mistakes like trying to force a door that I didn't have to or whatever, but a lot of little decisions and actions were taken that I had already rehearsed thousands and thousands of times in my head. So I think that helped that go a little bit smoother for me. And it also, um, you know, unfortunately that, that victim, uh, perished in that fire. Um, and in all reality, he was likely dead before we got there. The amount of fire that was in this trailer and, Assuming that he was maybe asleep in his room and he tried to get out the front door when he woke up to coughing because, again, the son, or the grandson said he always slept in his room uh, and he was found in the kitchen. But it really cemented to me that we're here to give people their best chance and to use our training, our experience, our knowledge, our thousands of dollars worth of gear to give them their best chance. We don't make those decisions from the exterior, we don't make those decisions, you know, haphazardly. We give them their best fighting chance. And we were not being reckless. We were not being extremely dangerous or taking on a, a crazy amount of risk. But we gave, we gave that gentleman his best chance. Uh, and there was just simply nothing that we could do. But our job is to not decide whether someone lives or dies. Our job is to give them every opportunity we can through our skills and our knowledge, experience, equipment to survive terrible events like that. But the reality is we can't save everyone. So, uh, but that really cemented in my head, the more prepared I am for this, the more I practice my skills, the more I try to share that information, maybe there will be an opportunity you know, in my career where we do meet the expectations of what it is to be a firefighter, you know, where we, all of that adds up together and, you know, you do save a life. So, um, that, that particular fire was, uh, was a real eye opener for me because the reality was there would have been some people, you know, in fire departments around the country who would have saw 
a single wide trailer that was at least 50% involved in fire uh, and just say, we're not going in there, you know, but luckily the first two captain, luckily the battalion chief, the truck company, we didn't, we didn't say that. We, we did do everything we could to knock as much fire down so we could get in and search and we did find the victim. It just, you know, in that moment, it, it didn't all come together to result in a save, but we did everything we could. So it's almost becoming trite. <clears throat> it's being so many people have caught on to the message and they're repeating it and it's becoming somewhat ubiquitous, but you know, brothers in battle has been very uh, resolute about saying that, that we're there for them. You know, that the public comes first, you know, our job is to solve their problem. And I hope we don't we don't let that message become cliche. Yeah. And I guess I don't know how to manage that um, because we want to continue to trumpet it, uh, but we we don't want it to to um, just become old and and tired. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's what that's about, right? Is is giving them their best chance. Yeah. And I mean, it is about it is about them, but it's also about my brothers and sister firefighters because. You know, uh, we feel better when we're a unit, when we're a team, when we're on the same page and we do everything that we can. I mean, nothing builds morale better than a good fire or a save on a medical call or all those things. So it is about them, but we can't completely remove focus from each other because if we do, we're going to be shit for them. So it's like this balancing act. And I I think, too, the, the focus is just it more borders along the lines of like, what are we willing to risk, you know? And the last thing that I want to do is have a firefighter, one of our firefighters die in a fire or, you know, God forbid, or whatever, because we were trying to do that. Because reality is uh, I'm the chaplain and I'm going to end up speaking at that funeral too. (laughs) So selfishly, it's like, I really don't want to be put in that position either. But the reality is, is it's a possibility. I mean, it's a possibility for us to have that happen uh, when we're trying to do everything we can for them. But like, again, for us in a small community as well, my entire family lives essentially in my truck companies first do, you know, we have engine. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many or tell how many calls that I've been on with uh, you know, a kid that I coached in baseball, his parent, or, you know, one of my dad's farmer buddies, or, or, or just any of these things, or people I just recognize from the grocery store, or from the gym, or whatever. I mean, that is a real possibility for us to be standing in front of our own house on a fire, and having to make those decisions. And so what we want to do is, if we have that same approach towards them for everyone in our communities god forbid we ever be put in that position in front of our own house so because shifting those gears of like well i'm going to kind of be self-preserved you know in this one scenario but then i show up to my own house on a fire and i will literally die trying to save my kids like you can't those kicking in those gears is really difficult to do so I try to take that same approach and then dial it back if I have to for for everybody. You talked about, um, I don't even remember what the specific thing was that you mentioned that you, that you talk about um, 
when you're lecturing on search and you've become uh, obsessed with search over the last maybe three years. I've watched you um, dive in more and more and more first into the data of the numbers of how people die, where they die, when they die, where they're, where live victims are found, um, and, and trying to start the firefighter rescue survey so that we can get good numbers on on these people we actually save. We, we know about the people that, that die, but we, we don't really have good data on the people that are saved. Um, <clears throat> so when, you, when you're teaching, we have kind of this, this interesting or unusual uh, aesthetic uh, with Brothers in Battle where it's uh, uh, there's videos of, of you and Cody and, and Justin McWilliams uh, you know ball caps t-shirts cowboy boots Carhartts flannel shirts that kind of thing and uh, there's been a little bit of blowback on that uh, there's folks who've, who've maybe stated that they don't find it to be terribly professional uh, what's your take on that and, and how did we end up that way I think we ended up there somewhat naturally because we all dress like <laughs> that normally. Because there's nothing else in the closet. There's nothing else for us to wear, you know. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I just don't really care if people think it's that <laughs> professional. I mean, when I look, I, I like to think, <laughs> when, I, when I look back at, at, at men that I've admired throughout my life, um, there's not one that's ever worn a suit. And that's just the reality of how I was brought up. It's just the reality of, you know, growing up on a farm as a farm kid and, and going to a, you know, cafe at six o'clock in the morning with my dad with all these characters there. You know, there is a guy, Red, who this is back when you could still smoke in buildings, you know, and he'd be smoking cigarettes and he looked like an old hound dog, you know his droopy eyes and everything and then there was a guy that everybody called dad even the guys that were older than him called him dad i mean and there's all these characters and guys that that i grew up with in the uh, very I, I i'm not even i'm not even blue collar i'm like brown collar ditch digging you know just dirt a dirt son of the soil kind of a thing and all these guys i saw yeah again they none of them dressed that way they all dressed in their work clothes all the time, you know? And, and uh, if my dad dresses up real fancy, he puts a black pair of Levi's on, you know? And a nicer hat, you know? And so when people have that pushback, I understand there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, professionalism that's maybe attached to the way you dress. And if you, if you look good, you'll present good or people will be more receptive to it. But in reality, I I don't want my clothes uh, to speak for my skill level. I don't want my clothes to speak for my reputation. Like I'm, I know what I'm talking about. I just want to do the work and let that speak for itself. So, you know, our unofficial uniform of flannels and Carhartts and cowboy boots or whatever is everything we do with Brothers in Battle. We try not to be something we're not. And that's just who we are. You know, we wear these clothes. We want to be representative of hard work. And that carries over into when we go and speak somewhere. And we want to be, above all things, approachable. We don't want to talk at people. You know, we want to talk to them. And we don't want to 
give this impression that we're any better or we're any different than the average firefighter that you see walking around because in reality that's all we are and all we're doing is trying to pass on these lessons and and stuff that our mentors have taught us and that trickles all the way down into our attire and that's just you know how we accept it and if it turns people off then hopefully the material that we present uh brings them back in you know after the fact but we just like to keep it honest and casual and and uh the way we would do it if we were teaching a class for three people in the middle of nowhere is the exact same thing that we'd wear if we were speaking to 700 people at the firemanship conference and we don't we don't see any difference whatsoever in in our approach in either of those things so we just roll with it so, so speaking of the way we do things honest and casual is uh we save a few bucks when we teach classes by by bunking up together <laughs> in, in hotel rooms there's no uh there's no separate hotel room it's like yeah. you know yeah. it's like the old days of of the dorms i think and or the sardine bunkhouse can. yeah pack them in like sardine cans in our hotels uh which brothers in battle instructor have you slept with the most often cody trust trail <laughs> hands down and i've enjoyed every time i've done it so yeah cody and i have, have got an opportunity last year especially we traveled quite a bit uh going to you know the art of firemanship days and fdic and uh you know going to a couple of little conferences trying to get the word out about our search class and so yeah we've I've definitely spent more time, uh, you know, sharing a bed or at least a hotel room with Cody than probably any other brothers in battle instructor. Has he ever tickled you with his mustache? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I don't kiss and tell. So. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, let's move into the standard refined by fire questions. You are a backseat firefighter. You're going to promote pretty soon, though, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, somewhere... In the next 20 years? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so I think this is a cool question for you because as of this day, you, you, and we've talked about this quite a bit, you don't intend to promote. You intend to, to ride that backseat uh, until you can't ride it no more. Uh, what actionable advice would you give the firefighter with an officer who refuses to train or only begrudgingly allows training? Well... Uh, if you have an officer who only begrudgingly allows training, then you're fine. You know, if they, if they'll do it, but maybe they don't like it, then so what, you know, at least they'll do it. You know, I've had officers who, uh, it's not their favorite thing in the world to train, but if you have an officer who doesn't say no, when you ask, then everything is good because, you know, either one, you continue to train, even though if it's, even though it's begrudgingly and, and two, maybe if you do it enough, some of that motivation and fire kind of catches on. Uh, if you, you know, if you don't, uh, what, sorry, what was the other, the first part of that? I skipped it. Refuses to train. Yeah. So if you have an officer that refuses to train, uh, you just train by yourself then. Uh, I've spent, you know, a lot of hours uh, throwing ladders forcing doors, doing mock-up searches uh, completely by myself. And 
again, I, I, I typically don't have a problem with it because, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway because I've got that a little bit of a internal motivation. But, you know, there have been a lot of times where somebody sees a firefighter out there training on their own and they decide to join in, even if they just come out and watch sometimes. Now, and obviously that's not ideal, but maybe they come out and watch one time and then the next time they actually end up coming out and participating. So the reality is uh, if you want to be a good firefighter, you have to train. So whether or not you end up doing that by yourself or with a crew that might not be that into it, uh, it has to happen because um, one thing that I've seen in my short 10 years so far is is you are going to do or we are going to do what our training uh, has taught us. And so if that's not much, then it's going to be not much. And if it's been really good training and we really pushed ourselves to be better, then, uh, then we're going to do some uh, great things on the fire ground. So uh, you just have to make it happen however you can. What about like picking your battles? You've, you're known as a person who is passionate. That often means opinionated. And if you want to influence change in your department, you're going to have to speak up. If you speak up too often or in the wrong way, especially from the backseat, you know, you can, you can actually negate your influence. So how have you managed that? Uh, it's been, it, it can be difficult because my, my default is kind of William Wallace mode. Uh, <laughs> I just want to, <laughs> I just want to go into battle, but, um, some of the best compliments I've ever been given, I think, uh, as far as my fire service career is when an officer tells me that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very confident in what I do, but. I'm not overconfident and I don't, I don't push it on people. So that's been a very, I've had to work at that. That didn't come by uh, naturally. And so, um, you just kind of have to, when, you know, when you talk about picking your battles is again, the number one thing to do is be the example. That's first and foremost, as far as, as, as doing your training, but you also have to recognize, or we also have to recognize that uh, people are in a lot of different places in their lives. And sometimes the way they are at work is because of a personal issue going on or whatever. And so recognizing sometimes that, you know, maybe today isn't a good day and, and I'm not going to push this on somebody is a good thing because if people see that one, that you're vulnerable as well, that maybe you don't you're not going 110% every single day. And it's like, Oh, I, you know, I had, you know, whatever, a bad day at home yesterday and you, you take it easy for a day. Uh, you're more relatable to people. And so I've kind of tried to find the balance in that because earlier in my career, again, I was, I was in my default mode, but I've kind of tried to temper that. And what that I think has gained me is at least, on the surface level, some buy-in when we are having bigger conversations, you know, and I, I have an opinion and I have a voice that can be heard from the back seat, which is not always the case. But I think it's because of a, a layered approach to, you know, picking my battles and, you know, understanding partially as well that 
just because I'm passionate about something doesn't mean somebody else is. You know, like my, my dad always says, it matters whose chickens the coyotes are eating as whether or not the coyotes are a problem. You know, that's like, uh, you know, you might be very passionate about this one thing, but you realize this other person, they might not be passionate about that at all. So you think it's a huge deal. They don't care about it at all. And so like trying to navigate those waters is just being very reflective on yourself and just trying to have, you know, a degree of emotional intelligence when looking at people to try and uh, kind of sift through that. So That's cool. What is the fire service wasting its time on? Oh, boy. I tried to think about this one quite a bit. I think we la- we waste a lot of time trying to change people's minds on social media. I think that is a complete waste of time, and I can't remember one time ever two people arguing back and forth on social media where one person uh, threw up the white flag and said, oh, yeah, you changed my mind right here, you know, from 2,000 miles away. I think we waste an unbelievably amount of time arguing about that. It's so easy to get on social media and see something that you don't like and just move on. But for whatever reason, maybe it's, yeah, I don't know what the reasons are, but it's really easy to get caught up in those. And I did that myself very on, very early on in my social media uh, kind of exposure was I wanted to debate anyone who, you know, said something about something I put out or whatever, and just realize it's a complete waste of time. It, there, you're never going to change each other's mind. Uh, you're only going to get pissed at each other, and then, you know, you're going to get derogatory towards one another, and it, it just it doesn't work that way. So you either, you, you know, we have a choice to either move on and, or uh, we can just put out something ourselves that expresses our point of view and let that be what it is instead of trying to, you know, have this dialogue uh, on social media that just isn't going to work. We all have sent or read text messages or whatever and got from like the closest people in our lives and got the wrong tone, the wrong, you know. And so we do that with complete strangers on social media and then think we're going to make some kind of a difference in, you know, the perspective of one another. And it's just not going to happen. So I guess real quick before we move on from that, something we've talked about a lot and I think it, I think it dovetails into this a little bit is that sometimes on social media, we see a lot of platform standing and, and it's well-intentioned, I think in that people want to um, shine a light on something that they're, that that they feel their department does well or, or an issue that's important to them. Um, and the discussion we've had a lot along with Justin McWilliams um, is, is about trying to be more inclusive with our language. How did you, how did that first kind of reveal itself to you? How did you become aware of, of some of the, the pitfalls of the language that we were using or, or you've seen folks using uh, in the fire service on social media? Yeah. So when we, when I first started recognizing this I guess maybe I was recognizing it in myself uh initially was that like you make a statement and you say you 
you know, if you're doing this wrong, you should do this. And you're putting that out on social media. And what I recognized was, is like, it, that was more talking at people, uh, versus if you change that same statement and say, if we are having an issue with this, we need to do this to make it better. And that just intrinsically is more inclusive with people. And you've, You've heard the last uh, couple things that Stephen and I have talked about. I've caught myself several times saying you and switched it to we <laughs> because this is an ongoing thing with myself of like trying to what you're trying to build is is that togetherness feeling. And so if you look at social media posts, yeah, see, I did it again. But if we look at social media posts, like look at something on search culture and you'll see something that Justin has posted and look at the language, look at the pronouns are that are used. And a lot of times we are using words like we and us, because again, we're, we are not trying to present an idea that we are any better than anyone else or that we've got this all figured out. We are trying to, in this large group of the fire service, trying to bring the best out of ourselves. And it happens that, and even if it's not intentional, when we make a post and we say, you know, you should be doing this or you should be trying out this technique or you, that gives the impression to me. And now I recognize it all the time that that person, that individual has it figured out that they're better than me. They're smarter than me. And they're trying to teach me who is an idiot how to do this. And it's just like, I've caught on to it more and more and more, the more I, the more I look at it. So just using words like we and us versus you and they, you know, you're, you're being inclusive rather than kind of creating a separation just in these very simple pronouns in a, a point you're trying to make. I think that's really strong. And again, something that I catch myself doing, uh, particularly when I'm teaching in like a small group, um, saying I, yeah. I always, I never, you shouldn't, you must, um, instead of it, we should, it would be best to, um, they being everyone who's taught me, they told me, etc. Uh, so yeah, I guess, I guess a little bit of a, like exhortation to listeners to like, think about their language. Uh, like, like Aaron Field says, uh, words matter and voices carry. Brian, you're sitting across from me in your black old school iron hoodie. I think if anyone has come across you on social media, they're going to have an idea of what the answer for this, this question will be, which is uh, what is your fitness routine? This is really fun for me to ask you because two years ago, like I know you, you didn't have a fitness routine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and so I, I think it's really cool. Uh, I think in depth, someone, someone could, could uh, listen again to that fit to five fire podcast and get you, you know, really talking in depth on, on how you landed here. But, uh, uh, what do you do to stay fit and why are you doing it that way? Yeah. So like you said, a, a few years ago, I, I really didn't have anything. I've, I've lifted weights since I was 14, you know, a freshman in high school is the first time that I can really remember picking up uh, a barbell and that was all for baseball. So, I did that for a long time with a specific 
end goal in mind, which was being a base, a better baseball player. And then uh, I moved into the fire service and just kind of kept up doing the same things that I'd always done. And then a couple years ago, I kind of found myself just being uh, super lackadaisical with it and like accepting the the attitude that, oh, I'm getting older. I just don't want to get injured, that kind of a thing. And so I'd fallen into that routine of I'm just going to move these weights around, but I don't really care how I do it or why I'm doing it. And then uh, it was last, I guess, October or so, Josh Webb shared an article written by a guy named Mark Ripito. And I can't remember the name of the article at the moment, but... I remember the name of it because I hate it. (laughs) What's the name of it? The name of it is Conditioning is a Sham. Oh, yeah. Conditioning is a Sham. Yeah, that is a great title. It draws you in. (laughs) Uh, And I read that article that Josh put out there, and uh, I kind of just had this moment of, like, I don't have we – we've already talked about kind of ad nauseum in this. It's like I don't approach anything in my life with this lackadaisical attitude. Like, I've never – really had a hobby in my entire life I have obsessions I don't have hobbies so I I was kind of this moment I looked in the mirror and go you're kind of uh you know being a little bitch about this like you're not pushing hard at all and so I went through and I did this starting strength program and started doing this starting strength program and which was you know uh kind of a change of pace and changing a lot of the ways that I did things in the gym and uh, it worked really well and I got fairly strong and I uh, made it through the they call it the novice linear progression um, and uh, saw a lot of strength gains and, and I really liked it I got to the end of that and it was kind of like now what and so I started going to a new gym in, in Boise old school iron in Boise and uh, they had a lot of strongman equipment there. They had atlas stones and a yoke and a log for log press and all this stuff. And I was like, well, that stuff looks kind of cool. And so I started messing around with it and really, really started to like it. And and it was funny because, uh, you know, my dad takes all the credit for me being half decent at it because, of, <laughs> you know, it was like going back to being a kid and growing up with a mom who was a landscaper, you know, working 70, 80 hours a week and a dad who was a farmer. And all I did was pick up rocks and rolls of sod and load wheelbarrows as with as much shit as I could and push them around and, and carry around all this stuff. And so it was like uh, reconnecting with that a little bit. But so now my focus has moved uh, completely into strongman. Uh, and, and, the the benefit that I've seen is, is on my performance as a firefighter because strong man is just all about picking up heavy, awkward things and moving them. And that's what we do on the fire ground all the time or what we do on medical calls. You know, last week we had at least a couple of fall patients that were 300 plus pounds. And the idea that like, oh, well, we have four people on an engine and two paramedics and all six of us can pick that person up. Well, not when they're in the bathtub or not when they're stuck between the toilet and the bathtub. Like you have to have a certain degree of strength to perform the duties on this job. And strongman is all about picking up heavy, awkward objects and moving them. And so 
I've really, really fallen in love with the style of workouts and how that has prepared me to drag five inch hose or move hose lines in awkward positions or pick up heavy ladders or pick up heavy victims or whatever it is. I think it's really uh, starting to pay off and I'm seeing benefit in that on the fire ground and on any other emergency that we go to. And I've also uh, kind of fell in love with competing again. I've done a couple contests and have had fun. And so that's definitely doesn't hurt either because again, it gives me a goal to work towards and something to get, you know, uh, get that fire, that internal fire going towards. And, uh, and I definitely like that. So, uh, strong man has, has become my primary fitness routine. And I think it's worth checking out for a lot of other people as well. Excellent. Okay. Two more things. My favorite two questions. If you could have any, excuse me, if you could have every firefighter in America read one thing, a book, an article, or a blog post, what would it be? I got a long list, actually. <laughs> but uh, Brian's not good at following rules. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, if I'm going to answer this question honestly, uh, the first thing I would say is the Bible. Um, but I know that's kind of a pipe dream. Uh, but... Uh, I've never... Let me stop you. <laughs> what would you have them read in the Bible? Like, one, it's one thing to pick it up and read it from Genesis to <laughs> Revelation, right? Yeah. But if, uh, you know, if five people who are listening to this are actually going to crack open the book, like, where should they go? Uh, read the four Gospels, you know, start there, and then the New Testament would be would be great, too, but... If you're going to read only one thing, uh, read the Gospel of John is what I would say. But uh, And that's spirituality aside. I mean, it's the, the Bible is the greatest story uh, I've ever read, and I've never come across anything in my life that I had a question about that I didn't find something in that book to relate to. And people uh, prescribe a lot of... Uh, beliefs and and religious ideas to what is in the Bible, but in reality, to me, uh, in my perspective, is it's a story from the beginning to the end, and it's written in a way that a lot of stories are written, uh, you know, to communicate ideas that maybe we didn't have words for at the time through pictures and, uh, you know, allegories and all these things, and I look at the Bible that way, and find a lot of carryover to uh, situations in my life. So that would be that would be number one. But other than that, um, I would recommend people read some poetry. Um, I know that's something that hasn't been said on this podcast before. I'll give you a slow clap. It's <laughs> a slow clap. But, uh, and the, the reason why I... Uh, you know, writing is one thing that I've I've uh, kind of obsessed over in my life at certain points, and I know somewhere down the line, when when I'm no longer a firefighter, it will be perhaps the primary obsession that I go through. But uh, poetry, in and of itself, when you read it, when you write it, uh, is so cutting. Like you have to break things down to their simplest, purest 
you know, form of themselves to, in order to communicate things. And I think if we took that approach to what we do in firefighting, where we're just always paring these things down to their ultimate effectiveness, it's really no different if you're doing that to a poem or you're doing that to a skill. And that's what poetry is. And so when you read it and you can recognize how a writer can use limited words to convey very big ideas and very big, very uh, poignant pictures, uh, you can apply that to a lot of other things in your life. And so, you know, some of my favorites are, are guys like Jim Harrison, you know, who also wrote Legends of the Fall, you know, which I also recommend reading. It's only 90 pages, you know. The movie's like five hours long, but but the book's only like 90 pages. And uh, Sherman Alexie, another one of my favorites. Richard Hugo, you know, there's a book called The Lady in Kicking Horse Reservoir. It's another one of my favorites. And uh, Billy Collins. But, I mean, just read some poetry, you know, and I know it sounds... I know... We all know what it sounds like, but it's totally... Uh, can be eye-opening and is much more uh, masculine and tough than it seems on the surface. You just have to approach it through the right voices and the right writers. That's it's so cool that you said that. Um, <clears throat> I could I could go a lot of places with that. You mentioned Billy Collins. Have you ever read "I Am a Typewriter with a Penis"? I don't think I've Dude, read that one. I'm serious. Like, look it up. <laughs> it's it's a wonderful poem about masculinity yeah. uh, that that I think everyone should read. Brian and I had a the same teacher in high school. Uh, we were we were a year apart. We didn't have a class together, but we had a, a, the same teacher in high school. A guy named Chris Dempsey, who was a masculine dude. Um, mm -hmm. A guy who played uh, football. Yeah, he he had grown up as a football player. He'd been a football coach, um, very much an outdoorsman, um, and also very much a writer and a poet. And he had a, a lot of influence on me and and also on Brian. So it was it was cool that as adults we we connected and kind of had that same background. And I guess my two cents on poetry, since Brian brought it up, is just that you know I, I think we all need beauty in our lives, and there's something. Uh, so dense about poetry that um, you know it's not like tackling crime and punishment. Um, you can you can read it at your own pace. I read the same Wendell Berry poem every night for like six months at, <laughs> at one point in my twenties. Uh, so you know I think that's I think that's really cool. I think that's a good uh, I think that's a good recommendation. Yeah, and uh, beyond that, if you're going to read something about firefighting, read the the two books, the major books that James Braidwood wrote back in the 1830s. Uh, I think Rob Fisher mentioned uh, on fire extinction and fire prevention on his podcast. And uh, the other one, I believe, is called On Fire Apparatus and Fire Engines, I think, if I remember right. But uh, very good stuff. And it's super humbling because if you read that book, and you can find it online if you Google it, um, you'll realize there is not a single <laughs> probably a fireman alive today that came up with a, the majority of the ideas that we have about fighting fires. Because you read, this is 200 years ago that he wrote these books, and you see stuff about VES, you see stuff about closing doors, you see stuff about victim, 
you know, thinking about victim profiling, profiling and victim behaviors, uh, where victims go when they retreat from fires. Um, you see all these things and about training at night and turnout times. And this is all 200 years ago. So there's really none of us as firefighters in the fire service today that should be laying claim to a lot of these ideas. And the reality is if we're not giving, <laughs> if we're not giving props to James Braidwood, uh, we're probably, you know, giving the wrong person recognition for a lot of this stuff because I've yet to find, you know, maybe it's out there and it totally could be, but I've yet to find somebody before him that came, that was writing and speaking about a lot of these things. So look up James Braidwood. And the last thing on my list of uh, stuff to recommend is, is a short story that I actually read that this, uh, our writing teacher, Chris Dempsey gave us, I think when I was a sophomore in high school or a junior in high school, I was 16 and it's called Walking Out and it's by David Quammen and you can Google that and find it. I'm sure Steven will put a link to it, but if you, uh, we're all, we're all sons and daughters of somebody, but if you are a father to boys or a boy or or you know you you had a complicated relationship with your own father or whatever i mean it's just a it's a very good short story uh that talks about um you know what it means to to pass on knowledge to somebody and and even if you go down to the bottom of it what uh, a successful relationship between a father and son can be like when maybe on the surface it doesn't appear that way. So, uh, yeah, Walking Out by David Quammen. It's a powerful story. You shared that with me earlier in the week. And, um, yeah, everyone check that out. Quammen is Q-U-A-M-M-E-N, and I will put that in the show notes. All right, B, last question. Firefighter Fantasy Draft. I know it's like the worst way to put it. (laughs) But uh, this is a fun idea, and this is something that – I think I think it was originally with you and Rosenbaum. And Rosenbaum. Yeah. Just like delirious at the end of a long stretch uh, driving through Oregon, having having taught a class in Arcadia, California, I believe is when this this was born and we spent hours naming our, you know, like ideal engine, <laughs> truck, yeah. rescue, crew, uh, in all sorts of different configurations. So this is your day. And uh, specifically, so I'm going to shout out to John Kwan, who hit me up a while back. And he's like, hey, man, everyone's naming an engine. Can you have someone uh, list their their ideal truck? So I know that you will do that for us. There's yep. no way that you would There's lower no yourself <laughs> to uh, I'm not picking staff an engine. An engine. No. So, so be, give me your ideal truck crew. All right. So this is kind of a fun idea, and I'm not going to take the easy way out and not do it like several other people i'm sorry to call you out on my <laughs> podcast but i'm not i'm not taking the easy road out and saying i love everybody but but i am gonna i'm gonna i decided i'm gonna pick people outside my or, my own organization because i mean i love the the crew and the shift and the and the guys that i work with i i really feel are some of uh the best guys to be around uh, i would have you know I would have a completely different 
uh, truck crew. If I was to pick guys from my own department and the surrounding departments right in our our little valley here. So I'm going to, I'm going outside and I'm picking guys that have had probably the biggest impact on me, uh, in my career. So to start that off, I'm going to pick the guys in the back seat. And first I got to pick Cody trust trail. I mean, he's been one of my biggest mentors and, uh, a great friend and has, a you know, really stood up for me uh, when, you know, maybe people didn't think I should be uh, putting out some of the things I have or doing some of the things I do or, or teaching some of the classes I've had. Cody has really always been there for me. And on top of that, he's a great fireman and he has an unmatched passion for the fire service. So I'm picking Cody to ride in the back seat with me. And, uh, I'm also picking Justin McWilliams because uh, Justin, uh, him and I just have the same, you know, the same mind specifically when it comes to search and uh, the same tempo and the same desire to push ourselves to be better and to really look internally and do whatever we can to try to keep ourselves humble and always be learning and always trying to uh, you know, just be better at performing searches, you know, because it was a deficiency that we both recognized in ourselves and wanted to make better. And uh, I think we're just really on the same page with that. And I've learned a ton. I've learned a ton from Justin in the in the short time that we've known each other. So Justin's the other firefighter with me in the back. And then I'm going to move to the driver and I'm going to pick Jesse Avery. Jesse Avery was the one of the co-founders and co-owners of Brothers in Battle with Cody Trustrail. And uh, he works for Vancouver Fire Department in Vancouver, Washington. And uh, Jesse has been, you know, just another great mentor to me. I feel like I can, I can call him... It's the same with the other guys, but I can call Jesse and talk to him about anything and he just has this great way of digesting things and and really breaking them down and then being able to communicate them in a very clear way and again he's a guy that's becoming you know a senior guy and uh he's still continuing to push and always trying to better himself and and him along with the other two have have just uh taught me taught me pretty much everything I know it seems like about uh being a good being a good truckie and and being good at search so they've really helped you know shape the way uh the way that I look at things so now I'm gonna for the captain I'm gonna break up this love affair with brothers in battle guys because <laughs> <laughs> it's uh uh for the captain I'm picking uh Rich Bell, who is a captain uh, for a truck company in Riverside City, California. And Rich, I first met Rich when I went to a uh, very long truck academy in Riverside, uh, actually as a volunteer firefighter. And he was one of the instructors there. And, uh, you know, Rich is, Rich is one of those guys who's got quite a bit of time on the job. And... Uh, he works at a busy department, and he goes to a lot of fires. And 
whenever I get text messages, text messages from him, it's always like, uh, you know, something that he could have done better on a fire. You know, he sends pictures and it's, hey, we found this and it tripped us up and we could have done better. And he's super humble guy for as experienced as he is, knowledgeable as he is. He is always continuing to figure out better ways to train, figure out better ways to operate on the fire. And uh, I just really admire that in a in an officer and he kind of embodies that and he's just super fun to be around he's always (laughs) always cracking jokes and and always you know giving people a hard time or whatever and just laughing all the time but he also has this super intense side when it's time to get work done he's all about it and there's probably no question he's the best truck captain in the world that only has one thumb so i mean uh you know so yeah uh rich bell would be would be my truck captain uh you know no question and and so that that's kind of rounding out my crew but that there are so many guys uh that have helped me ryan royal rob fisher uh i already mentioned andrew brassard and guys like josh materi and there's a million guys, Dave McClellan. I mean, all these guys that I've met outside my own department that have, have really helped me and helped shape uh, the way I view the fire service. I'm just indebted to them for forever. And that's not to mention, I mean, there's there's a ton of guys here locally and in my own department that have done the exact same thing. So That's great, Brian. That's First of all, that's a really cool crew that you picked. Uh, it's cool that you went with five. I thought you might try to sneak in like six. Or seven. I was gonna. <laughs> I should have done a rescue. I, was I definitely guess definitely gonna stop you at five. <laughs> uh, and and that's such a cool mix of people. And you know we've talked about some of the benefits of social media, but don't get it twisted. Like there are these these people out there, these these brothers and sisters who don't have a social media presence or they don't have an FDIC class who are among the best firefighters you will ever meet, the best officers, the best battalion chiefs you will ever meet. People like Jesse Avery and Rich Bell, who you'll never see make a Facebook post, you know, for right, wrong, or indifferent. There are incredible people out there to learn from, and you got to branch out your own agency. you got to go to classes. And you also have to honor those people in your own agency who maybe, maybe they don't, you know, they're not part of a national cadre or something, but, um, you got to learn from those folks and honor them. Um, and those, those senior guys like, like Jesse and Rich, um, you know, you ever get a chance to sit down with one of those guys? Don't talk, just listen. Uh, that's all I got, Brian. We could talk for a long time. Um, maybe we'll do a round two someday. Maybe I'll do a Q and a, have, have the listeners send in their, their questions <laughs> yeah. for you. Uh, but this, this was really fun, man. So thanks for coming out and freezing your butt off in my back porch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I really enjoyed it, man. So thanks yeah, a lot. Me too. Uh, if someone wants to hit you up on, <clears throat> well, wherever, how, how can someone get a hold of you if they want to find out about Strongman? They want to find out some things about, you know, your ideas on search. They want to talk about, um, you know, anything, any of the, the struggles they're having in their own department. How th- how can they track you down? 
Uh, well, if you want to know about search, get a hold of Justin McWilliams <laughs> at Search Culture. Uh, uh, yeah, you can you can find me on Facebook. It's Brian Olson. Search for Brian Olson. Or, uh, I'm on Instagram as well. Uh, His Fire Inside is my Instagram account. And uh, yeah, just shoot me a message or whatever. I mean, trade phone numbers, emails, whatever to get, you know, uh, get in contact with each other. So, or Brothers in Battle, you know, Facebook page as well. Cool. All right. Thanks a lot, bud. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of Refined by Fire. Hit us up on our Facebook page and let me know what you like. Let me know what you think we can do better. And let me know who you'd like to hear from in the future. Also, please be sure to check out Elkhart Brass. They're supporting us, so please support them. Elkhart Brass is a division of Safefleet. Safefleet owns a bunch of different brands like Elkhart Brass, like FRC, Foam Pro, and ROM. A bunch of companies that can help you out if you're specking an apparatus. They might have some stuff that you're interested in. LED lighting, flow meters, roll-up doors, etc. So if you're in the market specking a new apparatus, uh, make sure you check out what Safely can do. 